We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello, and my guest today has spent over five decades in the game of football as both a player and a broadcaster. He is one of 20 guys to have played all 10 years in the AFL um, and won three AFL titles, appearing in six AFL championships and then has been on NBC, ESPN, and other networks uh, since 1970, broadcasting games into your living rooms. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Paul McGuire. Paul, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Rich, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Well, Paul, let, let's, let's start off at the beginning. You're, you're from Youngstown, Ohio, and went to Ursuline High School. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Youngstown. Um, and maybe, you know, your years at Ursuline, where you were both an all-state wide receiver and punter. Well, when I was at Ursuline, uh, we go back to the beginning. There was a guy by the name of Nick Johnson, who there's Volney Rogers was a place where everybody went to play baseball and knew all the things that you wanted to do. Uh, it was on the South side and he ran the park in the parks department. But he was also a guy that, that came to practice every day, and he just helped out Tom Carey, who was the coach, and he didn't get paid. He just came and helped. And because, you know, you only had one coach in high school in, in the 50s, and that guy coached basketball. Tom Carey did basketball, track, and football. And Nick Johnson said to me one day when I was out putting the ball, screwing around, he said, you really want to – buckle down and learn how to punt. And I said, I would love to. So he's the guy that showed me how, did it all for me. And uh, where I was kicking from, uh, Wick Avenue is, is the avenue that Urson High School's on. And there's a big fence around it. And it was 65 yards exactly from the point, point, point that I kicked the ball into where it went over the fence. And every day that I punted, I had to kick it once, at least once over the fence before I could finish. <laughs> and that's basically how I learned how to punt. So uh, just to give you some background about Nick Johnson, uh, when that happened after I got out of uh, college and, and went to the, uh, played football after that, I was on television. I just decided to start the Nick Johnson Scholarship Fund at Ursuline High School because he's the guy that taught me how to kick. And if it weren't for him, I would have never, ever gotten in probably to the, to the Citadel because you got to understand something. I was a receiver and we, we ran a single wing offense, which right. you don't throw a hell of a lot. Right. And uh, so I actually, uh, Al Davis was the guy that brought me into the Citadel, but that's another story. But anyway, what I did is I started a, some 30 years ago or more, I started a Nick Johnson scholarship fund at Urson High School, and we've been giving scholarships out ever since. And it's uh, strictly for need and not 
and you must maintain your grades in order to keep the scholarship. If you don't, you lose it. It's that right. simple. And it's not for, you know, it's not for someone that doesn't need, only people that need financial aid that really want to go to Ursuline High School. And basically at that time it was a, to get a Catholic education. So that's how this whole thing started. And just trying to pay back a little bit for someone to help me years and years and years ago. And uh, it's worked out very well. That's a, that's a great gesture. And and when uh, you were coming out of the Ursuline School or Ursuline High School, you're, you're being recruited by a number of pl- places. Um, you end up at the Citadel, recruited by Al Davis, which I want to get into in a second. But you're also being recruited, as every Ohio schoolboy wants to be, by Woody Hayes in Ohio State. Um, and there's a there's a funny story that goes with your Woody Hayes recru- recruiting. Uh, do you want to tell that? <laughs> well, how did you find that out? I, I dug around. <laughs> Well, I was I was at when the Ohio All Star game, and you know I actually could have gone probably I guess to any school in the country, and uh, Kentucky wanted me to go there, and uh, Woody Hayes was taking it for granted that uh, I was going to Ohio State because right. everybody uh, there's let's see there's 25 guys from the northern eastern part of the oh the state played 25 guys from the southern Western part of the state, if that's the way it went. And uh, George Izzo, you may remember that name, went to Notre Dame. Sure. And I went to the Citadel, and there was, I think, one other guy that didn't go to Ohio State, and everybody went. But anyway, uh, everybody took it for granted I was going to go to Ohio State. And uh, I was at the Ohio All Star game. And I told, people there that I was going to go to the Citadel with Al Davis and Woody Hayes wasn't very happy about the whole thing. (laughs) So when I got word of it, we find out that he came to the hotel and I was on the first, second floor of the hotel and we had water balloons. So I just happened to drop one on his head on the way out as he was going out the door to let him (laughs) know that I wasn't going to Ohio state, but I didn't hurt him. Everything was fine. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that meanwhile, like you said, you've made the decision at this point to go to the Citadel. A young Al Davis is the assistant coach who's recruiting you. Um, tell me about your initial impressions of Al Davis, a guy who would, you know, he would be kind of a recurring figure in, in uh, certainly the early part of your career. Um, t- tell me about, you know, being recruited by Al Davis. Rich, let me tell you something. He became one of the best friends I ever had. Yeah. And he treated, you know, Al Davis is one of those guys that if you were loyal to him, he was truly loyal to you. And you could talk to any Raider that either played under him or when he was uh, when he was a coach and when he was an owner. Uh, nobody did it better than he did. He came. <clears throat> the reason I went there is because he came to Youngstown and visited my mother and father. And I came home from school and Al was there. And my father, you know, he only went to the third grade. My mother went to the sixth grade. And he worked on a B&O Railroad. And he said, this is Coach Al Davis from the Citadel. My father never influenced me any way at all. But I just looked at him uh, and I thought, anybody to take the time to visit my family, my parents, I have to take into consideration that he's, this is the place that I need to be. And, you know, obviously he said he's take care of me and do all these things. And, uh, not money-wise, they didn't do that. It's a military school and they didn't do anything. But right. I decided, he said, but the most important thing is when he told me, he said, Paul, I guarantee you that your first year you'll be starting and you'll play. And that's all I really wanted to do. I just, right. I, I had great grades. I mean, I, I never had a problem with uh, school, math, or any subjects. And I, uh, when he said that, he just sold me. This is exactly where I'm going. And I'm, and I ended up down there, and everything turned out really well. And I'm glad I did. And four years later, I was drafted. I don't know where the hell I was drafted by the Los Angeles Chargers in 1960. I ended up with them. 
for four years and in Buffalo for seven. Yeah. And, and when you were there, you and he, when you were at the Citadel, he was the one who kind of taught you to run good routes, right? Which he, that's exactly right. He actually, he taught me how to run patterns and how to catch a, a football. And the most important thing he taught me was to, no matter what happens, you keep your eye on the ball and make sure that you watch the ball in because the most important part about it is you've got to catch the football. You're going to get hit anyway. And he said, someone's going to knock your ass off, but you might as well go ahead and catch it while you're getting hammered. Right. And that's the one thing that I had in mind when, after running patterns that he taught me how to run and is just to keep an eye on the ball. And then uh, fortunately for me in 1959, I ended up, uh, leading the nation in touchdowns receiving, uh, yards, yards catching. Uh, because of Nick Johnson punting, I was uh, fourth in the nation or some damn thing, some numbers. Uh, uh, it was just all the things that happened uh, to me at that time in my life when I needed some direction, you know, as to where to go and what to do. And, it, and it's interesting. So you and Al are at Citadel. He then leaves as an assistant to go to USC. You stay at Citadel. And, and like you say, your senior year, thanks to his tutelage earlier in your career, you lead the nation in receiving touchdowns and yardage. Mike Ditka is on the All-America team with you. Um, and then you get drafted by the Chargers. Sid Gilman, Hall of Famer, is the coach. And lo and behold, Al Davis is now the new assistant coach in the first year of the AFL and the first year, <clears throat> obviously, of the L.A. Chargers at that point. Um, you know who else was there? Chuck Knoll. Yeah. Chuck Knoll, Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, he was defensive line coach and, and linebacker coach. And then Jack Faulkner, who was the defensive backfield coach, ended up coaching uh, New Orleans Saints at the beginning. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm just uh, – it's just been – I've been surrounded my whole life with people that just knew the sport and knew what to do and how to treat people. You know, I got, I got a, the first thing I ever, ever did with Al Davis when I went down to the Citadel to visit, Rich says I, he took me out to famous steakhouse. And I can't even remember the name of it now, but I'm 17 years old. I've never had a steak and we go to dinner and the guy, the waiter said, what would you like? And I saw this. I wanted to know what a T-bone was. And he told me, told me that, you know, it's, it's half filet and there's half. And I said, you know, that sounds really interesting. And I'll, I'll have that. And at that time, it was probably five ninety five for the steak, whatever. Right. And I got, I got salad and baked potato and all that stuff. And the guy, the waiter comes up and he says, uh, how, sir, how would you like to, before he said that, Al, let me order. He said, I'm with this young man and he knows exactly what he wants. So I'm going to let him order. And I really felt, oh man, now I'm six foot eight. Right. I just, uh, <clears throat> you know, I can, now I can order. And I did. And the guy said, well, sir, how would you like that prepared? And I said, smart ass that I was, I said, uh, on a plate. <laughs> he said, no, no. How would you like it cooked? And I said, oh, how else? Well done. And the guy looked at Al Davis and Al says, hey, this man knows his steaks. And I right. knew nothing. That's the first <laughs> one ever. That damn thing came, Rich. And I swear to God, I couldn't even cut it. <laughs> and I thought, why the hell would anybody pay you that kind of money to get a steak? And I, the only thing I'm thinking about, you know, it's well done. Everything we ever had, it was well done. You had to cook it. Right. And I just, uh, it was the most horrible steak I think I've ever had in my entire life. And all through, every time we talked about the Citadel, I reminded him of it. And Al always laughed about it and said, you know, uh, I just admired the fact that you just took credit for what you did without, you know, being mad or asking why or whatever. We just, you know, it worked out fine. Right. But the, th the, only, the, the deal that set, it, set me aside from the guys down there 
took me up in the press box, excuse me, and the Citadel, you know, it, it, what is it, seats 19,000 people maybe mm-hmm. at Johnson Hagen Stadium, and he's got me up in the press box, and he's standing right behind me, and he said to me, picture this. And I said, what? Because <laughs> there's nobody there. There's just a, he said, Starting wide receiver from Youngstown, Ohio. Ladies and gentlemen, number 86. And he's standing behind me and he goes, Paul McGuire, McGuire. And it's the people cheering. And I tell you, I had goosebumps on my arm. I was, by God, there's now I know why I'm here. Yeah, you want to play right now? Oh hell yes, I did. But it was it was just as. But you know when he left, he asked me to go. He took four guys with him, and I'll never forget who they are: Albert Benz, Albie Ben Savage, Jock Wilkins, and a kid by the name of Angelo Coya, who ended up playing with the Chicago Bears for a couple of years. He was a wide receiver. These guys are all from Pennsylvania, and they went. But when I left home to go to the Citadel, the only thing my father ever asked me to do, he said, no matter where you go, promise me you'll stay for four years. Because there were a lot of guys in those days that, you know, went to schools and because they weren't playing, they they transferred to other schools, but they had to wait a year to play. But they did that and never did finish school. And that was the one thing he wanted me to do is just finish. Go there for four years, stay for four years, and then your life is after that. And that's right. the one thing I promised him, and that's the reason I didn't go. And 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 Al could sell too. D- didn't he tell you that uh, Citadel? You wanted to be. You were thinking of being a dentist, and he said, yeah, "Well, well dentistry school." Yeah, it's an engineering school for Christ's sake. I said, "Yeah, I said when you know I thought you know because I always remember my mother paying for our dentist, which you know." They had to set stuff aside to do that. And I thought, Jesus, they make a lot of money. Yeah, I'm going to be a dentist. He says, don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. Well, as everybody, I didn't know, but everybody does know, the first two years of college are really, it's not your major. It's just the basics you have to take. Right. And I'm telling everybody that I'm going to be a dentist. And and I didn't realize how stupid that really was. (laughs) But it was. And I didn't. Yeah. Well, Al could sell. Um, <laughs> he really could, uh, but again, let me reiterate this, this man, uh, I'll tell you, he was one of the best friends I've ever had. I just remember when I had a five way bypass back in 91, mm-hmm. the first guy to call me was Al Davis. And he said, if you want to go to this, I got a specialist in Chicago. I'll have a plane at the airport for you. Wow. And I said, no, thanks. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to have it done here. And I mean, it just, that's just the kind of guy he was. And he does that with every single guy that ever played for him. And if you ask these guys and you pick up the phone and talk to any of them, they'll tell you the same thing. The best friend they ever had. I remember in 87 during that strike, I was in college at the time and Howie Long crossed the picket line and somebody said, you know, what are you doing? How, how could you do it? And he said, you know, I think how he came from a pretty tough background in Boston and he might've had like an uncle who was out of work or something like that. And Al Davis had gotten him a job and he said, how can I, how can I strike, you know, picket against a man who gave, you know, somebody in my family a job. And, you know, you understand that. You know, and the thing about him, I bet you, I'll bet you a hundred dollars to a donut that, that how he never had to ask Al Davis to get his, Uncle the job or whatever. Al just did it. Right. And that's yeah. just the kind of guy, you know, uh, yeah. I just admired the hell out of him. I really did. And so it's interesting. I, I love this story. Um, you get drafted by the Chargers. Uh, somebody from the front office comes in to talk to you. And I think they're going to give you seven or $8,000. And he also lays out $1,000 in $100 bills, $1,000 bills. And the guy's name was Tom Eddy. Tom Eddy, okay. 
and he and he and you sign and you take those 10 hundreds and you walk over to your dad i think it was it a bowl game they were in town for a bowl game yeah the copper bowl in phoenix arizona okay and you give five of them to your father and sadly a few years later he passes away and you're going through his wallet and you see that those $500 bills are still there. I get goosebumps. You're talking about this thing. I, yeah. Yeah. That's it's exactly an amazing story. I, I read it. And I, like I started to tear up. It was amazing. Well, he's the guy that, you know, he's the guy that took care of me and brought me into this world and, and gave me guidance to go wherever I went and ended up being the right move that I've made all my life. My old man, I tell you, Charlie, he, he didn't have, school smarts, but he had street smarts. Right. And, you know, um, I just remember when I was a kid, when I was what, nine or 10, we were in the, in the kitchen and we all had dinner at five o'clock because he worked on the BNO railroad from seven o'clock to three o'clock every day, five days a week. Right. But I just remember one day he's telling us what to do. And my brother, Bernie, he said, you're doing this. My brother, Jack, you're doing this. And Paul Leo, you're going to be in charge of that. And I said, why? And he backhanded me across the kitchen floor. He got up and I'm laying on that linoleum floor and he reached down and grabbed me by the collar and pulled me up. And he said, because I said, so that's why. Right. And I've never asked why again, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he just, Hey, he didn't hurt me. He scared the hell out of me, but he yeah. didn't hurt me. And it just, you know, and that's where the way we were brought up. Uh, yeah. We had no problems. We didn't worry about anything. We just knew that the next meal would be there. So, so now you're with the Chargers. Now, the other $500 that you didn't give to your dad might have been spent on some beer that summer because all of a sudden, instead a of 185 it. pounds, you're about 225 when you report. Well, you got to understand, I went, you know, in those days in the 50s when we played, I played both ways. I was a wide receiver and, and an outside linebacker. So I played okay. both ways uh, in college. Okay. And then, but the only reason I really made the team is because I was the only punter that was left. And you had to play, you know, a lot of positions, especially on special teams, which I ended up playing for 11 years and enjoyed the hell out of it. But that's the only reason I made it in 1960, because I was the only punter that was left. Yeah. And besides, I played linebacker, and I was the fifth linebacker. Even though we only had 32 guys, for some reason or other, Chuck Noel said, we, I, we need to keep five linebackers. So that's how I ended up. And then two guys got hurt during the course of the year, and I ended up playing and starting for the next three years after that before I went to Buffalo. But that I was there at the right time, at the right place. And I, and I, and I just, you know... My, I talk to my kids and my grandsons, and they tell them, they say, you know, you played pro football. I said, whoa, let me explain something to you. So you understand, I was there at the right time in the right place, and that's why. And the thing about it is, I mean, we went through so many guys in that training camp. We had six weeks of two-a-days. Then we had, uh, what, four preseason games? Hell, it was brutal. And I never, the, problem, the biggest thing is I never got hurt. Your team was loaded. I mean, you had Jack Kemp at quarterback. You had Paul Lowe, Ron Mix in the Hall of Fame's offensive lineman. Um, and you guys were good right out of the gate. You went to the championship game that first year. You lost to George Blanda and the Oilers. Yep. Um, and and you had, at, at linebacker, you had uh, three interceptions. And then the next year, you go to the championship game again and lose to the Oilers. But obviously, you're, you know, the Chargers are – emerging as one of the top teams in the AFL early on. Keith Lincoln is on the team. And then you get Hadel and Lance Allworth also. Um, I mean, your team is loaded. What, what was that? What was like the locker room like on that team? Well, you, you know, with, with Sid Gilman and, and the people that we had, the coaches that we had, it was, uh, we knew we were going to win. Right. Uh, Sid, Sid Gilman just said to everybody, and it's the first time I ever heard a coach say this, and a lot of guys take credit for it. He said, let me tell you something. The only thing that I can do is put you in the right place at the right time on offense or defense. 
You know what to do. And we're putting you in the right situation. We only ask you to produce. Right. And that's why we won. Everybody bought into, you know, I hate that expression because people say, you know, they're buying into it. Hell yeah, you're buying into it because if you didn't, you'd be cut. Yeah, you're gone. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's as simple as it gets. When the coach says, you know, I really like the fact that, that my players buy into this. Well, let me tell you something. If they didn't, you wouldn't have them on there. If you did, you're an idiot. Right. I, I saw a great quote from Al Davis about Sid Gilman. He said that Sid Gilman brought class to the AFL. His organization was like a laboratory for the highly developed science of professional football. Rich, when we had training camp in the first year in, yep. in LA, uh, we're at Chapman College. And I tell you, I had, uh, through training camp, I had uh, nine different roommates. They weren't around very long. You know, they came in. And I had a guy that put his clothes in the room. I never met him. They brought him in after breakfast. They timed him, looked at him, do a couple of moves. They cut him. They, they let him go before noon. He never got a meal. He never, never got <laughs> to change clothes. I mean, he was gone. He was a guy I never saw. But, you know, you, you just expect it. Don't, don't just don't get too close to anybody. And the one thing they did is they did. They put us in the right position at the right time to do the right thing. And if you didn't do it, it was your fault. Right. Yeah. And then, and then in 63, you guys break through and you win the AFL championship. You crush the Patriots 51 to 10. You have a heck of a year. You have four interceptions that year. Um, and in your first four years, you had nine interceptions. You know, in addition to being one of those years you were the leading punter in the league and you were always in the conversation for top punter in the league. Um, in fact, that year that you guys win, the commissioner of the AFL, Joe Foss, reaches out to Pete Rosell of the NFL and Gilman reaches out to George Hallis of the Bears, who had won the NFL championship, saying, hey, do you want to play a championship game like, a, you know, a, a winner takes all? And both Rosell and Hallis say no. But of course, three years later, we finally do get, you know, what ended up being the Super Bowl. Um, do you remember, do you remember, you know, kind of hearing about that Foss and Roselle talking and Gilman and Hallis? All I know is that Al Davis uh, at, at one time later on became the commissioner of the, of the uh, AFL and the National Football League. And, and if it wasn't for, I think Al Davis the one that really promoted and got the Super Bowl started. You know, we never really, we never really talked about the NFL. Uh, we were just concerned about the AFL. And the AFL was so strong. We had some great offenses and some pretty good defenses. But the, the AFL was uh, just one of those things that <laughs> I'll tell you, Greece, when we started playing in preseason games, because we were, you know, we just played within our, in, in the, with the eight teams. Right. And we are going to play a double. We only played preseason games right near the, when, when it's right near the end of my career, when they started to get to start to do the NFL as we're doing a, a preseason game a double header in cleveland it was in cleveland in cleveland i believe they were playing the green bay packers and we were playing the chicago bears okay and uh during the course of the game i went i was back in funding position and now uh was that lb miller i think centered the ball over my head and i ran back and grabbed the ball and it, you know, it bounces and it bounced the right way back in my hands. These guys are coming down on me. I just kicked the ball backwards up over my head and it went 43 yards in the air. Jeez. Well, you, but you know, guys used to do, you're screwing around. You did all these things when you're practicing and not, but anyway, after the game, we're walking to our locker room and Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers are coming down the tunnel, the same one we're in. Yep. And I didn't, Rich, I swear, I swear to God, I've never met the man. I didn't know him. I didn't know who the hell he was. And Dave Kostrick and I were walking up and Vince Lombardi says, young man, I got to tell you something. It's one of the greatest kicks I've ever seen. And I said, thank you very much. And Dave Kostrick says, you know who the hell that was? I said, no, some guy. I don't know. He said, that's Vince Lombardi. <laughs> I said, 
who the hell is he? <laughs> I swear to God, I didn't know. That's I amazing. really didn't. That's well, funny. I wasn't, you know, I was, I was consumed about what we were doing. Yeah, of course. And it's funny because, you know, as obviously Gilman and his coaching tree and his, his legacy of success speaks for itself, but he was pretty tough too. And after that championship season, you asked for a $1,500 raise on your $13,000 salary. He uh, actually said, I want you to sit down and he pulled out a projector and, you know, in his office, there was the screen on, on the wall and he said, I want you to see this. So he puts this roll of film and it's small, really was. Mm-hmm. And he said, I just want you to watch this. And he had six of the, my really bad plays that I had made during the course of the year. And that's what he had on the reel. And then he shut the reel off and he looked at me and he said, and you want to raise? <laughs> I said, no, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I was, I'm I was good. actually humiliated. I, uh, but he was also the general manager and he dealt all the contracts and everything. It was getting whatever he could. But I was there for four years. And then uh, right after the year, I ended up, uh, he, they cut me, which is really funny. I, Bob Burdick was the uh, PR guy. Mm-hmm. And he called me to tell me that uh, it, they put me on waivers. This is at the uh, beginning of 64. And uh, what happened was that the Buffalo Bills lost to the Boston Patriots in a playoff game. Okay. And Lou Saban kind of figured that they, you know, they were in camp too long and they were burned out by the time they ended the season, which is crap. But anyway, that's his thinking. And so Sid Gilman didn't, they, you know, he said, or Burdick said, they're going to put you on waivers. Well, he didn't put me on waivers for 48 hours. And when you're on waivers, you're usually on waivers for 48 hours. And then someone picks you up or, you know, at least talks to you. Okay. And I figured after the 48 hours, I figured, holy Christ. I said, you know, I mean, it's, I started for three years with the, with the Chargers. Uh, I was one of the best punters in the league and I, and I played all the special teams. I figured, God, somebody's got to, you know, want me to play. And all of a sudden I get a call. It was about the 52nd hour. I get a call from Lou Saban. And he said, uh, Paul McGuire, and I'm in San Diego. But I, what I didn't know was that they were going to go to camp a week later than anybody because they, he figured they were a little burnt out. So they hadn't been in camp yet. Right. And he said, uh, I just picked you off of waivers from the uh, San Diego char- or from the uh, yeah, San Diego Chargers. And I said, wait a minute. I said, I've been on waivers for 50-some hours. He said, no, he, you, were just, you just went on waivers. That's what that's the way Sid was trying to tie my hands, I guess. But anyway, right. he said, "I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, who is this?" He said, "It's Lou Saban, the Buffalo Bills." I said, "Really?" He said, uh, "I said, why aren't you in camp?" He said, "Well, we actually we're going to go in a week later, and that's why we're putting our roster together." And I said, "Well, you know, pardon me, I don't think I could say this, but I said this bullshit." And I hung up the phone. <laughs> then about five minutes later, I get a call back from uh, Jack Horrigan, who's their PR guy. And Jack says, uh, Paul McGuire? I said, yes, sir. This is Jack Horrigan, PR guy. So look, am I going through this crap again with you guys? I thought the guys from the, the Chargers were, you know, pulling some crap on me. And right. I said, uh, he said, no, no, we picked you up off of waivers. I said, yeah, yeah. I, all right, I'll tell you what. When you send me a ticket to come to Buffalo for training camp, whenever you guys are going, I'll be there and I'll sign the contract. And I hung up. <coughs> That's great. I, I catch it on the news in San Diego that I was picked up by the, char- by the Buffalo Bills. And I went, oh, my God, I'm done. I'm not going to play. <laughs> and then 
but Saban called back and, and took care of everything, and everybody was happy. And I, I did. I got a fifteen hundred dollar raise. Yeah, Sid Gilman could be tough. I, I, I interviewed Bill Curry on this podcast maybe two months ago, and Bill had gotten involved with the players' union, and you know, kind of replacing John Mackey when he was retiring, and right. he was involved in some activity. Was at some meetings, I think, in Washington. Came back to Houston. Gilman cut him. You know, didn't obviously didn't say why, but it was kind of clear why. Um, yeah, Gilman could be tough. <laughs> but so, well, yeah, so you, you know the story about you know the story about Ringo and and uh, 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 the coach of Green Bay. Oh, Lombardi. Yeah, you know Jim. When he you know he had an agent, finally had an eight, got an agent, and they just won the championship. They won the second Super Bowl or Pro Bowl, whatever they called it at the time. Mm-hmm. And he he came into Vince Lombardi's office, and, and Vince was like everybody else, just dealing the con, doing the contract. And he said, uh, <clears throat> "I gotta, I want you to bring, I want to bring my agent in." And Lombardi says, "Excuse me," he said, "I got an agent in the other room." And he said, "Well, why don't you go out and just sit with your agent?" And this Ringo now, he was all pro and doing all that shit. He comes. Sure. <clears throat> about 10 minutes later, he, uh, Lombardi calls him back in the office and he says, let me tell you something. I want you and your agent to call a Phil- call Philadelphia. Cause I just traded you to them. That was the <laughs> end of the conversation. Um, and you, so you get to Buffalo <clears throat> and they've got Jack Kemp is there. He's left San Diego. You've got cookie Gilchrist there. Um, and and that team goes 12 and two. We had, we had a great, I'll tell you, we had a great defensive line. Defense was unbelievable. We, yeah. uh, we, uh, we had Sestak, McDowell, Dunaway, and Day on, on, the, on, the, on the front line. Stratton, Jacobs, and Tracy. And then the defensive backs were Bird, Bird and Booker Edgerson at corners, and nobody can beat those guys. In fact, if you remember, in the 64, 64 championship game, we went to San Diego. Booker Edgerson ran down Lance Allworth and tackled him and made him fumble in the end zone. Right. We had guys. I mean, we really had some great players, man. And, and, you know, that's the one thing about I always, you know, I'm 84. I'll be 84 years old and everybody thinks, you know, you're a little crazy. Yeah, I am. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. Coaches don't win football games. Players do. Right. If you're a coach and you have the right players, you can win. We had okay. the right players in 64, 65, 66 too. And yeah. you look at, you look at, you know, if you don't have the right players, how the hell can you coach, you know, and win when other teams do? You look at all the championship games and all the championship teams that are out there. There are stars all over the place on these teams. Absolutely. And the coaches yeah. put him in the right position to be able to do it. But have you ever seen a coach catch a pass, take, nope. make a tackle, nope. go down on a kickoff? Never. Yeah. <laughs> coaches don't win football games. Players do. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, that 65 championship that you guys win 23 nothing early on in that game when it's still a pretty, you know, close game, uh, one of your defensive backs, Butch Bird, goes uh, returns a punt 74 yards for a touchdown and you lay the perfect block at the end that takes out two guys at once. And I think Hadelin Allworth or in uh, Hadelin Kasurik. Yeah. Those were the two. Okay. That was my job. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, putting a guy in the right spot to do the right thing and boom, you know, springs him for a touchdown and now you're up 10, nothing and you never looked back. In fact, you know, that's all the years, Rich, all the years that I, I did f- football, and that was 43 years between college and pros and all that stuff. I'd rather do it when I was doing a replay. I would rather talk about a guy getting a, a good block or making a great play on defense because I knew Monday morning as a player and you screwed up, they're going to rip you a new one, but you're looking at film in front of you, the whole team. Right. So I know the embarrassment of, of guys missing a tackle, missing a block, or doing whatever they're doing where they screw up. 
you know, that's why I always rather rather talk about the guy that makes a great player. It was a hell of a block or whatever it is, because yeah. I know that this guy is going to get ripped on Monday morning anyway. So yeah. there's no reason for me to do it. Yeah, it's it's almost it almost borrows from that. Um, what was it? I think it was Byron Wizard White. His line: "I always read the sports page first because it talks about man's accomplishments." People like to read about you know the good things. You know they want to hear about the you know the the, the positive. Um, and that, and that builds uh, that defensive line. I, I, I heard you tell a great story about, you know, at the game, it, it's like 10, nothing or 13, nothing. Um, and it's kind of in the third quarter and you go over to the defensive line and, you know, basically say, you know, come on guys, we gotta, you know, we gotta do this. We gotta win this game. And they have a great response for you. Well, they all did it in unison and they said, don't worry about it. They're not even going to score. And I'm thinking, we're playing the best offense in all of all of football, the San Diego Chargers, and they were. Yeah. And those four guys are sitting there saying, "Don't worry about a damn thing, because they're not even going to score." I thought, That's it. It's over. Yeah. Done. And you won twenty three nothing. Yeah, it was fun, and I tell you, it was fun because I still lived in San Diego at the time. You know, I just, I, you know, Rich, I want to ask you something. Has anybody ever won three championships in a row? Has anybody ever won three championships? Well, because I won, I won with the San Diego. I, I was a player on the team. I'm talking about. I won with the, right. with San Diego in '63, and then we won it in '64 and '65 with Buffalo. And you somebody called me, talking not too long ago, and said, "You know, you're the only guy that's ever been on the championship team that's won three championships in a row. Not Super Bowls now, right?" championships the only one i can think of would be those 65 to 67 packers because they won the nfl championship in 65 and then the two super bowls you know the first two super bowls that would be three in a row so whoever would have been on those you know like i don't like a forest greg or something like that but the list is short that's for sure you you had a great line before that last championship with the bills I think you guys were like double digit underdogs and you're getting off the plane and somebody says, what do you think? And you said, well, you know, we're, we're 10 point underdogs. We're going to be lucky to come in third today. <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah. That's smart ass. That's a smart ass answer. <laughs> um, but you know, that it, 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 it was, it really was fun to play against the team that you played for for four years and then all of a sudden you get cut and you get the, the, the back with another team that beats them twice in a row. I mean, that was just kind of neat. Oh, the ultimate revenge. And I went out and party with those guys that night, the San Diego guys that, you know, they're all oh, worth really? link uh, Lincoln low. Um, Don Norton, Dave Kasurik. I Those are all really good friends of mine. And I, you know, and I still live there and they all live there. So, you know, cause they got on the plane and go back to Buffalo that night. And I just stayed barely and I stayed. And so we went out with those guys. <laughs> oh, cool. I was having a great time. They, oh, they yeah. weren't. <laughs> right. Right. And then Saban left. He, he said something like, yeah, I've accomplished everything I can accomplish in the pros. And so he left and went. Yeah, we never America. understood that. I swear to God to this day, I don't never understood why he did that. Yeah. He was talking about Cincinnati, right? At one time. Yeah, I think well, I think he left to go to the University of Maryland and then he came back to the pros, but then he went to the University of Cincinnati. Then he started kind of jumping all over the place a little bit to include coming back to yeah. Buffalo. A terrific friend and good guy. The championship game in 65. We we're all getting ready to go down and they're waiting in the tunnel and uh, officials come up and says, you got five minutes. And we're all waiting by the door and Cookie Gilchrist has got the door open and I'm standing next to him because my locker was right there and we're waiting on Saban to come down and he comes running down. There's a little ramp from the back room where the coaches were and he jumped up on the table and we're all screaming, come on, we got to go. We don't want to get penalized before the, which you're not going to do anyway. Anyway, he jumped up and he said, all right, boys, this is it. Heads down, toes up. 
Cookie Gilchrist opened the door and then pulled it back. And he said, what in the hell does that mean? Damon said, how the hell do I know? I'm as nervous as you are. <laughs> that was it. So when we got downstairs, when the Chargers, who had played ball against for years, they were all lined up. And Kasurik and Allworth were standing there. And, and our whole team was laughing their asses off. And we came down and, and Kasurik looked at me and he said, it's going to be that easy. I said, David, I'll tell you after the game. You're not going to believe what happened. But he just, he didn't do it intentionally. He was so damn nervous, but he just relaxed our whole football team. And so by 1970 is your last year. And in the, in the days of the AFL, the announcers would come, some of them at least, would come into the locker room before the games and talk to you guys. And so you had a relationship with Kirk Gowdy, among others. And he basically says to you, hey, you know, you're pretty personable and, you know, you should think about broadcasting. What was your initial thought when, uh, as your career was winding down about going into the booth? I never thought about it. I swear to God, I never thought about it. Kurt Gowdy was the guy that actually is the reason why I ended up doing television. Uh, I just, um, I, I wasn't doing anything. I was in the bar business and uh, I thought, you know, what the hell, why not? And I ended up doing it for what 43 years i it just uh, you know i i found out that if you are just yourself and don't make a big deal out of it because you know sunday is fun day and everybody loved sunday because you get a chance to hit somebody and not your own people all week long right and i know how much uh, i enjoyed it for 11 years just suiting up on a Sunday to play. And I, I knew what these guys were going through and what they felt, uh, how hard they worked. And, and so, so I have to ask a couple, so in your broadcasting career, you've, you've, you know, worked with, um, with, you know, some of the biggest play-by-play names, you know, of, of, of our generation, Don Cricky, Marv Albert, Dick Enberg, Mike Patrick, You've been in three-man booths that included Phil Sims and Joe Theismann. Um, I think it was Don Cricky who told you early on two things to always keep in mind. One is talk when you have something to say. And two, exactly. on replays. What's that? You're exactly right. And on yeah, replays, and tell them why it happened. Don't tell them what just happened because they already saw it. Yeah. we got too many guys that they analyze too much. There's a reason that this play worked. This guy blocked that guy, or this guy missed this tackle. It's very yeah. simple. Yeah. And Cricky was the first guy, before I went in, I worked with Jay Randolph as the first guy I worked with who just helped me immensely. And uh, Bill Ennis. Do you remember Bill Ennis? He only worked one, I worked one year with him, and, and, he, and he, he died. He had uh, young. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know but, him. Uh, his his brother Hunter Ennis was a player for us with the Chargers. Okay, but anyway, uh, everybody helped me along the line. But Cricky was the first one that ever said it to me. He said, "You know, when you go in." So what I did you know, on that flip card that we use to determine who's playing and what what plays are making and all that stuff, the cheat sheet, mm-hmm. I always put on the top. Talk when you have something to say and tell them why. And I think it, it's the simplest thing you can do. Yeah. We got too many, we, you know, we, there are just too many people that want to talk about all the things, you know, it's really stupid when you hear these guys say, you know, I've been looking at film all week long. Well, wait a minute. You're supposed to, that's your job. Right. These people don't care if you looked at film or not. They're, you know, there are, especially now, you know, there are so many, Ritz, there are so many games that they can watch. They can watch every game if they want to, if they get yep. the NFL ticket or they do this. And there's only one reason that they're watching your game is because they're interested in the two teams that are playing on the field now. Right. And they don't care what this guy did last week or last year. And you can't tell them what this guy's going to do next week because he hasn't played it yet. It's a very simple process. They're here to look at that game that's on the field right now. Now, tell me what's going on in this game. Not what you would do, but what they're doing. Yeah. 
Everybody's boiled, yeah. a genius, but none of us are. Yeah, boil the game down. Only one. I only system. met one. I only met one guy that was a genius. It was Al Davis actually Al Davis because Al Davis because he told me he was, <laughs> <laughs> and I believed him. He said, "I'm a genius." I said, "Yes, you are," because you said it. <laughs> um, and I, I I saw a great story where you were. Let me think about this for a second. You were working with Marv Albert, and you were the number two team, which is awesome. And they want to move you up to the number one team paired with Dick Enberg. And you basically, nothing against Dick Enberg, but you basically say, I, I want to stick with Marv. And they say, well, go talk to Marv about this. And t- t- tell me tell me about that whole, you know, how that all played out. Well, they, you know, they offered me the number one because, uh, who was it? Uh, Merlin Olson quit? Or no, okay. a Trumpy. Trumpy was oh, Bob done. Trumpy, sure. Yeah. And they, they came to me and said, you know, uh, we're really thinking about we'd like to be even the number one guy with Jim Simpson. And I said, I'm, uh, I said, you know what? I'm very happy with, because uh, Marv, I really enjoyed working with Marv. Uh, he was a funny guy. <laughs> no one really thought he was funny, but he really was. I, I, I called him on the phone and I said, I got to talk to you. And so we met and I said, look, they're offering me the, the number one job. And he says, you got to take it. I said, Marv, we have, I mean, we really are doing well. I mean, we're the number two team, but it doesn't matter. Two, three, it's just that our partnership that we have and uh, we're doing the second best game, but we're doing all the things that we want to do. He said, Paul, let me tell you something. A shot only comes once. And if you don't take it, you're crazy. And I spent a good hour talking to him just about doing that in leaving our partnership. And it was never, I've never done this for money. I never made it a lot of money. I never didn't, didn't make a lot of money when I was playing. I didn't make a whole hell of a lot of money when I was doing television. It was, I just, I loved it. It just something that you do because in your heart, you know, this is what you really want to do. And I had no idea when I was playing that this is what I want to do until Kirk Gotti said, you should be in the booth. And and NBC agreed, and it all happened. But it was never about money. It right. never was. I never had. I never had an agent. I still don't. I never. I, I dealt my own contracts. You better, if you're doing something that you really love and you're happy doing it, money has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's like you. I mean, I know you do all this stuff for free. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so well, one, one you do player it. asked me, how much do you make off this? And I said, well, I had to buy a microphone and that cost 150 bucks. <laughs> so I'm in the hole, 150 bucks. <laughs> sure. And this um, is one of the reasons why I'm doing this with you, because you know this is something that you do because you, lo- you love what you're doing. Yeah. And no one can do it better when you have that feeling. Yeah, that's a great point. That's why I always say, I'm going to go back to one thing that we said way at the beginning. Someone that helped you along the way, pick up the phone, write a letter, thank them. Yeah. Because if it weren't for them, you wouldn't be where you are today. That's yeah. simple. Absolutely. You know, I'm curious, uh, in the way that Kirk Gowdy spoke to you, have you over the years, over the many years of broadcasting, was there ever a player or players where you said, hey, when you hang it up, you've, you've got what it takes to be in the booth? Anybody stand out to you that way? No, honestly. I, you know, I've seen guys, you know, that, that do great interviews, but you know, it's, a, it's an altogether different thing because you, you, you don't have that much time to think about it and the plays happen so fast and you just have to be, you have to do your homework. You really do. Yeah. Uh, I think the most important thing that, that I learned from Cricky besides those other two things is that please learn how to pronounce the guy's name. Because his family, everybody is there watching the game. And actually, so I'm, I'm curious in, in your in your ten years or eleven years, I guess. So so you played you played with I mean some of the certainly you know among the best running backs of of that you know era. Paul Lowe, Keith Lincoln, obviously Cookie Gilchrist, O.J. Simpson at the end of your career, at the beginning of his. What what was your take on some of those guys? 
Cookie Gilchrist, uh, I'll just start with Keith Lincoln and these guys, Paulo. Paulo's got the great story. Uh, um, he, Sid Gellman was going to cut him. And we're going to play, I think it's the Boston Patriots in the first preseason game in the Coliseum in Los Angeles. And he told Paulo before the game, we all heard it. He said, get your ass in gear because if you don't have a good game in this one, you're gone. He took the opening kickoff 105 yards for a touchdown. <laughs> Ran over, handed the ball to Sid. He says, is that good enough for you? I'm going to tell you something. How good was that? That is awesome. You know who you know who reminded me of it, and so, well, didn't know about that, that part of the story that was there when he was a kid. Al Michaels, yeah. his father took him. He was at the game, oh, the very first so game cool. I played in. Well, and that Paul Lowe story reminds me. I, I interviewed Billy Kilmer, and Kilmer told me um, that when he was with the Saints, Danny Abramowitz, he's like, yeah, you know, this kid hustled in training camp and I really liked him, but he was told before the game, or no, he wasn't told before the game. Kilmer was aware that before a preseason game, they were probably going to be cutting Abramowitz afterwards. So he just looked over to Abramowitz and said, get ready, kid. You know, I'm I'm probably only going to play the first, you know, two quarters, but I'm going to, the ball's coming to you. Threw to him seven times, caught six, made the team. And, you know, carves out a nice, you know, kind of eight or nine year career as a result. Like, it's amazing how sometimes you just need that break, right? You pull like hell for a guy that you you want, you know, the players uh, want you to be part of the team, not because you're a good friend, but because you're a really good player. And they see it sometimes before the coaches do. And they do whatever they can to help him, you know, become a little bit better in that given day. And that's, right. that's really, that's a tribute to Billy Gilmore. Um, tell me about Cookie Gilchrist, watching him oh, play, because he's a fascinating oh, story. Sorry. Uh, well, he, he couldn't go into the NFL. You know, you had to, he, he, the only way you can get in the NFL drafted is if you're graduating college year, you know, and he didn't go to college. Right. So he played Canadian football for four years. Um when he came out of high school and the first time I saw him is when I get to the Buffalo Bills and here, here he is, he's six foot, what, two and a half, three, 235 pounds. And the meanest, toughest son of a bitch I've ever met in my lifetime. I, I say it with due respect. Uh, I just remember that we were, we were uh, playing uh, the Boston Patriots before we got to the cha- first championship game. And we we're a half a game ahead of them, I think, or they were a half a game ahead of us. And we had to win the game. Mm-hmm. And usually the locker room before the game, it, the, when we were there, guys are playing pinochle and smoking cigarettes and doing all this stuff and, said, you know, talking and shooting the, the breeze. And all of a sudden it was quiet. It's the first time that year that, that it was quiet. And we had we had a hell of a team. We had all those guys we're talking about. And uh, just knew we, we were, knew we were better and we knew that we we're ready to play. And Cookie jumps up in the middle of the locker room. This is God's honest truth, word for word. He said, I don't know what the hell's going on in this locker room, but I'm going to tell you now, if we lose this ball game, I'm going to beat the shit out of every single guy in this locker room. And Lou Saban walks out to say something and Cookie said, and you're going to be the first guy I, t- I start with. <laughs> I just got back and as far back in my locker as I can, because I don't, I didn't want to be the first guy up that he's going to kick his any. Anyway, it, we went out in the first play from scrimmage. He just took off and start running. And he, he ran over a guy by the name of Bob D and knocked him out. Or excuse me, Chuck Shana was the safety that came up to make the tackle and knocked him out. And Kemp comes to the sideline and said to, to Saban, you need to get him out of there. He's going to kill somebody. And Saban said, you want him out? You take him out. <laughs> take him out of the game. I'm not and saying we, anything to you know, him. Obviously, we won the game. And this is one of those things that you made up. This was absolutely true, word for word. And I'll tell you something. He scared the hell out of the entire team. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't think he could have. He, he just hit me. When Cookie got on the field, it was 
all out. And 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 obviously, and and kind of bounced around. Like after your first title in Buffalo, all of a sudden he's in Denver. Was it a relationship with the coach, or did he? Was it a contract issue? No, he. It was a contract issue. You okay. know, he thought he he thought he should have been making more, and <clears throat> you know, in those days there wasn't money to make more, right. and you know they can only pay you so much, and and if you didn't like it, you 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 hope you could move on somewhere and. But he had a connection in Denver, and he left. We were all sad to see him go, and yeah. he was just—he was a great team player. It just—I'm just, gonna tell you something. I can't—I don't know if anybody can say anything bad about Cookie Gilchrist. Yeah, he was just one of the toughest human beings I ever met. I um, think so. And you, as a punter, I mean, obviously, you—you—you you, you played multiple positions, you know, especially throughout your entire career, but even in the NFL, multiple positions. But. Uh, who were the punters that you watched and thought, you know, wow, there's, you know, that guy's really good at the craft. The best guy was, is, is, uh, uh, the Oakland Raiders. Um, Oh, Ray guy. No, Ray guy. Nobody was better. Gerald Wilson of Kansas city. Um, that's it. Me. And then me, those two. And then me. That's fair. That's a good list. (laughs) But they, uh, it is, uh, it's uh, guys that really worked at it. And, uh, you know, he was a hell of a quarterback when he was in college, Ray guy. So he was yeah. their, their third, he was their, their, their quarterback. If two guys go down guy would have been the quarterback. Right. Uh, but those are, those are the two guys that, that, uh, uh, should be in the hall of fame. Right. And guy and guy is in right. Did he he ultimately? Yeah, but uh, Gerald Wilson is another one should be there too. Yeah, yeah. Wilson along with Stenrud, the kicker of the Chiefs, they had a hell of a special teams game going in the '60s and early '70s. Yeah, um, they, they were something. Yeah, I, I I there was a great quote from Ron Mix, your former uh, Charger teammate, offensive lineman, Hall of Famer, and lawyer, um, talking about you. Said uh, Paul was smart and tough and had the respect for the game, but you had the sense having gotten through the Citadel that he always sat behind the smartest kid. <laughs> Did you ever hear that <laughs> quote from Ron Mix? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Was he, a, uh, they, if they, you want to learn how to play offensive tackle, they should, every, every player that's playing today should go look at the films of Ron Mix. He was that good. I mean, he, oh, good Lord. He can flatten you. He, you know, those just, he was so good. I don't know if he was ever beaten by a defensive lineman ever. He was the best I've ever seen. It's obviously (laughs) recognized a guy who liked liked to have fun. Hey, I, you, you know, when you're taking an exam, you got to sit next to the guy that's the smartest guy in the room. Right. I didn't happen to be that guy. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't happen to be that guy, but there was another couple of guys that were. Yeah, I was I was doing an exam, and the guy next to me just said, I don't know the answer. And I wrote on my paper the same question. I said, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's great. Um, well, uh, Paul McGuire, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Chasing Hardware. Uh, obviously, great to hear the stories from you know the days back in Youngstown, your days at the Citadel, the relationship with Al Davis. Obviously, you know as as being one of the you know very smallest of guy on the very smallest of guys who was in the AFL from the start to the finish and won three championships, um, and then obviously a, a you know a terrific broadcasting career. Also, really appreciate you coming on Chasing Hardware. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like. Life is like. Life is like.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.